Let's pray together. Indeed, Father, you are holy. More so than our unclean lips can begin to communicate. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us the the fact that you are a consuming fire. That we might appreciate what Christ has done for us, standing in our place, bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt, drinking the full cup of your unmixed wrath. Indeed, drinking damnation dry for us. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in fullness. And we pray that our encounter with Exodus 19 would change us and make us, as the author of Hebrews said, grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Lord, make it so that we can heed his admonition that with confidence we might draw near and enter through the veil that is the flesh of Christ, into your very presence. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in us by your word, through your spirit, make us confident in Christ. And we pray that through this you would purify us and make us a royal priesthood, a people who declare your praises because you've brought us out of darkness into light. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 19. And as you turn there, I want to say a word about Exodus 19 in light of the whole Bible. This moment that we have arrived at for the people of Israel is one of the key moments in the entirety of the Bible. At this moment, they've been liberated from slavery in Egypt, and they've been brought through the wilderness. They've now arrived at Mount Sinai, and what's going to happen in this chapter in Exodus 19 is God is going to come down on the mountain, and Moses, the text will say, is going to bring the people out to the mountain to meet God. And what's going to happen here in this this passage essentially is like what happens when a bride and a groom come to the altar and the the officiant, the pastor, says the words, do you this day take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And the bride responds with the words, I do. That's what's going to happen when the Lord is going to say to the people of Israel, Exodus 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then the people are going to respond in verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's exactly what Hosea is, is referencing in the passage that we had as our call to worship, when he says, I'm going to bring her out into the wilderness again and speak tenderly to her and there she will answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when 
they came out of Egypt. So what Hosea is saying is there's going to be a new marital covenant made between God and his people, which is also what Haggai was talking about. You know, in this passage in Exodus 19, um, the mountain is going to tremble. And maybe you're familiar with that song, Do You Feel the Mountains Tremble? It's talking about this passage. Uh, this is a unique experience that Israel alone had. So I would encourage you to be wary uh, of, of those things that speak of you having an experience on the mountaintop with God. That's not the way it's going to work. Uh, Moses alone goes up on the mountain. He's the only Israelite who goes up on the mountain with God. You can encounter God in the scriptures, but you're not going to ascend Mount Sinai, okay? The, the role of Moses is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And insofar as you, you're united to him by faith, uh, you know, in him you can enter God's presence. Um, so uh, the, the mountain is going to shake with an earthquake here in Exodus 19 as the people of Israel enter into this marital covenant as they say, I do at the altar with the Lord entering into this marriage. And, and then before they ever, ever leave the mountain, they're going to break the covenant. They're going to make a golden calf. And then again, before they ever get away from Mount Sinai, in Leviticus 10, the priests Nadab and Abihu are going to show this covenant isn't going to work and, and they're going to break the covenant, and they're going to get struck down, dead before God. So I submit to you that as you read the, the Pentateuch itself, within itself it's telling you the Mosaic covenant is, is going to be broken. And, and Moses will prophesy in places like Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. He'll say, this is what's going to happen, Israel. You're going to enter into the land. You're going to break the covenant. You're going to be driven into exile. But from there, you're going to seek the Lord, and he's going to bring you back. And Moses doesn't say, and we're going to reinstitute the Mosaic Covenant. No, he says, and the Lord will remember the covenant that he made with your fathers, meaning the covenant with Abraham. So I want to encourage you to, in your mind, follow the Apostle Paul's reading of these covenants in Galatians 3. And Paul is going to explain that God made these promises to Abraham and you don't alter those promises when you come in 430 years later and, and you add some regulations. And then Paul is going to explain how those re mosaic regulations were until Christ came. They were put in place like, like a babysitter is put in place over the children until the child reaches maturity and then he doesn't need the babysitter anymore. And, and that's like the time period between Mount Sinai and the coming of the Lord Jesus. But the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled for us in Christ in the form of the new covenant. And, and what I'm trying to communicate here is that this is what Hosea is talking about when he says we're going to have this new covenant-making ceremony where I'm going to speak tenderly to her and she's going to answer as in the days of her youth. And it's what Haggai is talking about when he says, yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth. And then the author of Hebrews, as we saw in Hebrews 12, quotes that passage and the author of Hebrews is going to say some important things that we'll get to as we move through Exodus 19. My point here is to say we should not come to Exodus 19 and think this is where we're going to stay because this is not where we stay. Which is to say we should not come to the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law Code and think this is where we're going to stay because this is not where we're going to stay. The author of Hebrews, and I just... I mean, this is not an exposition of Hebrews. In some ways, I wish it was, but we're in Exodus 19. The author of Hebrews is going to explain very clearly that where there is a change in the priesthood, and he's talking about the fact 
that we don't relate to God through the high priesthood of the line of Aaron anymore. He says there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And what he's saying is Jesus is our Melchizedekian high priest, so we don't come to God through the Mosaic Code. We come to God through the law of Christ, as the New Testament calls it elsewhere, which is the new covenant which the, which the author of Hebrews is very clear has been inaugurated in Christ. And, and having said that, let me also draw your attention to the way that um, the mountain shakes here at Mount Sinai, and the mountain's going to shake again, and the heavens are going to go dark, and the veil is going to be rent in two. And that's right after the man said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, so all that to say, we don't come to the law of Moses and think this is the perpetual law of God for all people at all places and all nations at all time. No, it's not. No, it most certainly is not. To go back to the law of Moses would be to abandon the new covenant. It would be to, to do a retrograde motion in terms of the, the progress of the covenants in, in the Bible. Okay, so there's Sinai in the context of the whole Bible. Let's think for a moment about Sinai, Exodus 19, in the context of the book of Exodus. Uh, the, the, the Bible is amazing. Moses is a literary genius. I, so what I'm telling you here, I think everything I've said to this point, I submit to you, Moses built that into the Pentateuch. Moses shows us in the Pentateuch, he tells us in the Pentateuch, this law is not final. This law is not ultimate. This covenant's going to be broken, and then God's going to keep the covenant that he made with Abraham. Uh, you remember in Exodus 3, when Moses met God at the burning bush, you remember what the Lord said to him? Moses, Moses wants a sign uh, that, that the Lord is going to bring the people out of Egypt, and the Lord says, this is your sign, here's your sign. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you shall worship me, where? On this mountain, and that's where they've come to here in Exodus 19. And then it's, it's fascinating the way that Moses has put the narrative together. You know, in Exodus 4, um, there's the, that strange account about how Moses goes to his father Jethro. Jethro uh, gives him permission to go back to Egypt. And then on the way, the angel of the Lord meets them and is prepared to put Moses to death. But he doesn't do it because Zipporah intervenes. Praise the Lord. Well, we just saw in Exodus 19, Jethro bring Zipporah back to Moses. So there's like these paralleling episodes. And then in Exodus 5 through 11, uh, yeah, 5 through 11 or so, um, what does God do? God defeats Egypt. God crushes Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is hardened. So God defeats hardened Pharaoh. Right before Exodus uh, 18, end of chapter 15, whole of 16, and chapter 17, uh, God provides for Israel even in the midst of all their grumbling. So God uh, defeats hardened Pharaoh, and then he provides for grumbling Israel. And in the middle of this whole thing, you've got uh, the, the, the institution of the celebration of the Passover, and then the, the celebration of the defeat of Egypt at the Red Sea. And at the center of the whole thing, I think, is the crossing of the Red Sea, which is like, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it's like the baptism of the people of, of Israel into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So this is just a magnificent narrative. It's an amazing uh, piece of ancient literature, and it's the Word of God. Uh, in, in the book of Exodus, as they come to Mount Sinai, it's as though they've arrived at something like the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel 28 
tells us that the Garden of Eden was a mountain where, where God uh, walked in the cool of the day with his people. And Exodus 15, verse 17, um, the, they had said there in the Song of the Sea, they, they sang to the Lord, you will bring them in, now this is talking about bringing them into the land of promise, and plant them on your own mountain. That's anticipating not Mount Sinai. Again, Mount Sinai is not the ultimate destination. It's anticipating Mount Zion when they go into the land. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, or we could say the temple, O Lord, which your hands have established. So it's almost like Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, is like an anticipation of that mountain sanctuary in the land of promise that will be Mount Zion. Um, Now, as we approach this text, Exodus 19, uh, I need to to explain the way that the temple is going to function in the book of Leviticus, and and then the way it's, well, that's the tabernacle in Leviticus, then the way the temple is going to function in the land so that we understand what we're dealing with here in Exodus 19, also so that we can see the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So uh, the, the, I think probably the most important thing to know about the temple, and the, before that, the tabernacle, and before that, what we're dealing with here, Mount Sinai, the most important thing to know is that God is there. And, and God is absolutely holy. And where God is, is fullness of life. God is absolutely holy, and where God is, is fullness of life. Think of Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy. And he's just said, you make known to me the paths of life. So where God is, is fullness of, of life. And it's perfectly holy. Transgression results in death. Death results in uncleanness. Okay? So once death and uncleanness are brought into the world because of Adam's transgression, there are now two ways to become unclean. You can become unclean by transgressing a commandment. You can also become unclean by coming into contact with death. And so if you've read Leviticus, you know that if you happen to be in a tent and somebody else in that tent dies, you are unclean. You haven't transgressed a commandment, but you've come into contact with death and that makes you unclean. There's danger in that because if God's holiness comes into contact with anything unclean, the unclean thing is going to die. So all of the regulations for purity, for sacrifices for cleansing, for uh, washings, all of these things are to make it so that sinful people who, who are made unclean by their transgressions and who are also made unclean by coming into contact with death, all those regulations for cleansing and sacrifices and so forth make it so that they can live in the presence of God and not be struck dead. Now, I need to say one more word about the uncleanness because of what we have in verse 15 of this chapter, Exodus 19, 15, if you want to look there. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, uh, what this is really saying is do not enter into marital relations with a woman. And, And the rationale for this is 
in the act of marital relations, in the, in, in the act of marital intimacy, uh, there are life fluids that leave the body. And when the, I think the, the idea is when those life fluids leave the body, um, they are no longer alive in a sense. And so you've come into contact with things that are not alive, that is dead, and that renders you unclean. This is also why if a man in the book of Leviticus has a nocturnal emission, he's made unclean thereby because life fluids have left the body. It's the reason why a woman in her monthly cycle, life fluids are leaving her body, they're no longer alive, and she's rendered unclean. So all of these clean and unclean regulations are being applied to this experience at Mount Sinai, and and it's all informed by the presence of God and the fact that he's holy, and the dangerous reality that if something unclean comes into contact with the holy God, that unclean living thing is going to die. Okay, so that's, that, that's sort of the broader rationale for um, what we're going to read here about Exodus 19 here in the context of the book of Exodus. So let's look together at the, at the text, and let's start in verses 1 and 2. We read here, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai is going to be mentioned twice here in verses 1 and 2. They set out from Rephidim, that's where they were in the previous couple of chapters, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped, this camping is going to be repeated, they encamped in the wilderness, there Israel encamped before the mountain. Okay, so the big idea here in Exodus 19, 1 and 2 is that they are encamped at Mount Sinai. In verses 3 through 6, there, there I would say, I think, um, two, two big things. The first thing is Moses is going to go up the mountain. And, um, and the second thing is the words of God are going to be given to him. And this, is, this passage, Exodus 19, 3 through 6, is one of the most beautiful passages uh, in, the, in the entirety of the Bible. So let's look together at Exodus 19, verse 3. Uh, Moses writes, uh, they encamped there before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. And now that that sort of introductory, thus you shall say to them, is going to be matched down at the end of verse 6. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So having said, thus you shall say to them, um, he's first going to rehearse his defeat of Egypt and his bringing Israel through the wilderness. So verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I think this is where J.R.R. Tolkien got the idea for the hobbits to be rescued out of the, you know, the, I bore you on eagles' wings, the Lord says, and brought you to myself. Now, we've seen, this is not exactly how it happened, right? We've seen how they, they got out into the wilderness at the end of Exodus 15, and they didn't have water, but the Lord met the need. And the Lord showed Moses a stick or a tree, and he threw it into the water, and it, the water became sweet. And then they get out of the wilderness, they have no food in the and the Lord provides manna from heaven. And then the Lord instructs Moses to strike the rock. So all of that literal experience of being provided for through the wilderness is described here as the Lord bearing them on the wings of eagles. 
It's a beautiful image, isn't it? The Lord, the Lord himself saying how you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, defeat of, of Egypt at the Exodus, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Maybe this makes you think of another passage, which is part of that Sinai is not the end goal thing. Do you remember what Isaiah says at the end of Isaiah chapter 40? I suspect many of you have this passage memorized. Isaiah says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. What Isaiah is saying is, there's going to be a new exodus. There's going to be a new a new shepherding by God of his people through the wilderness to the land of promise like what is being described here. Isaiah is pointing back to the exodus and the wilderness to point forward to the new salvation that God is going to do for his people. Um, There there are kind of three things here in verse 4. What I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. So the destination was God himself. And that's important for us to see. God redeems us to bring us to himself. God saves us to make it so that we can enter into his presence. God doesn't just save you to give you fire insurance against hell. God doesn't save you because he he needs some slaves. No, God saves his people to bring them to himself to enjoy fellowship and communion and a loving relationship, a a father-son relationship with his people. And then there's the the sort of question at the altar in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now let's take that if clause. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. I think many times we read this and we're tempted to think something like, the demand is now being placed upon me to obey, or the demand is being placed upon Israel to obey. And I want to encourage you not to think of these words that way. I want to encourage you to think of these words like, like a, let's rephrase the question, and let me put it to you like this. If you will do what God created you to do, and it's like saying, if you'll use your car to drive on the roads not try to use it as your boat, which isn't going to work very well, right? It's going to sink. Or if you'll use the guitar as a musical instrument, not as a baseball bat, which isn't going to work very well, right? I mean, you know, you might take one swing, and if, you've, if, you, if you're good at making contact, that's going to be it for the guitar. That's what sin is like. When you sin, when we sin... We are trying to do with ourselves something we were not made to do. So this this offer, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, it's like the Lord is saying to to an automobile, if you'll be a car or to a musical instrument, if if you'll be used to make music to human beings, if you'll walk with me, if you'll stay in covenant with me, If you'll stay within the boundaries where I'm telling you there's fullness of joy in my presence. If you'll do this, if you'll hear me. Now let's take the the then clause 
in the middle of verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession. I wonder if you have a treasured possession. I I wonder if you have a person who is your treasured possession. Can, Can you allow yourself to imagine the living God saying to his people, if you will stay within the boundaries that I set up where you're safe, if you'll do what I've made you to do, then you will be to me my treasured possession, the most precious thing in all creation, the thing over which I rejoice, the thing that I sing over, the thing that delights my heart. That's what you'll be to me. Can you imagine God saying that to his people? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God is saying, I don't have a shortage. I don't have a need. All the earth is mine. But if you'll keep covenant with me, if you'll stay within the boundaries, if you'll, if you'll do this to be in a relationship with me, then, then you will be my treasured possession. And not only... Will it be the case that, as the prophets will say, he will rejoice over his people as a a bridegroom rejoices over his bride in the book of Isaiah? Not only will it be like that, look at what it goes on to say in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let's take the first part, kingdom of priests. What this is communicating is... The way that Moses is going to stand between God and Israel in this chapter is the way that the nation of Israel is going to stand between God and all the nations. And what that means in this chapter, we're going to see Moses is going to do what God does. Moses is going to bring the character of God to the people of God. Moses is going to represent God before the people. And, and the glory of God is going to be displayed in Moses so that, in a sense, if you want to see God in the Old Covenant, you look at Moses. And I said that on purpose because Moses is going to be fulfilled in somebody who's going to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and so Moses is going to represent God to Israel. And then God is saying to the people of Israel... You obey my voice, hear my voice, you keep my covenant, you will represent me to all the nations of the earth. So that if the nations want to know what I'm like, they look at you. Can, 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 you, can you imagine the honor, the, the, the sense of privileged status that you would feel if um, the President of the United States came to you and said... I have no one that I value like you. And I want you to be my representative, let's say, to Vladimir Putin. You, better than anyone else, can represent the values of our nation to that person, and I'm sending you in in, in my place. That's what God is saying to Israel. I value you, I treasure you more than any other people. All through the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord is going to say things like, ask now from one end of heaven to the other. And and from 
from the day that God, that, that God created the world until now. Has there ever been anything like this? Has he ever done for any nation what he's done for you? To bring them out of Egypt and to, to give them his covenant. God is treating Israel like he has treated nobody else. He's saying, you're my treasured possession and you're my representative to the nations. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if Israel stays within the boundaries, if they don't transgress the boundaries, and if Israel offers the sacrifices for their cleansing, what's going to happen is it's going to be like they are, they are priests or they're you know, uh, vessels used in the worship of God at the temple that are set apart from everything else that you use in life, devoted to the Lord. That's what it means to be holy. Set apart and devoted to his use. That's what the Lord is calling these people to. And notice there are, there are kind of three things there in verses 5 and 6, aren't there? Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. So it's a nice three and three match. You saw what I did to Egypt, and then I bore you on eagle's, eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. And the purpose is for you to be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And then the condition is there in the middle. Hear my voice, hear and obey. The, the word in Hebrew is the same. To hear is to obey. If, if you're God's creature and you hear him, it's like, at least it should be like, the way light responds when God says, let there be light. And his commanding voice creates what it calls for. That, that's what this is supposed to be like. If you will hear my voice and keep my covenant, if you'll be what I've created you to be, then these things will follow. And then that concluding statement at the end of verse 6, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So in verses 3 through 6, we have this, this summary of what God has done for Israel, this promise of what, he's, what they're going to be to him. And it's all conditioned on verse 5, their willingness to hear him and, and, and keep the covenant. Now, this is the Mosaic covenant, and it's pointing forward to the new and better covenant, we know, in the context of the whole Bible. And you remember what Peter says to the believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, which is better than that of a lamb, he'll say at the end of 1 Peter 1. And, and then he goes on to say to believers, you are being built up into a spiritual house. It's, he's, he's like he's saying, uh, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit to them. You're living stones. And then he goes on to say, 1 Peter 2.9, you probably have that verse memorized, um, that, that God's people are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to him. So in the same way that Israel was to represent God to the world, that's our role as Christians, as, as, as the church of the Lord Jesus. We I mean, what does it mean for the church to be the bride of Christ but for it to be his treasured possession among all nations? And what does it mean for us to be a kingdom of priests but for us to be those who have been commissioned to go and make disciples, standing between the living God and the unbelieving world the way that Israel stood between the living God and the unbelieving world? But we have a direct commission to go and make disciples. So we stand in this, this enormously privileged position that I think is even better than the position that Israel enjoyed. And that brings us to verses 7 
through 9, where the bride gives her answer at the altar. So verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And, and this is kind of the central statement of these verses. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Notice how uh, the Lord, Moses brings the Lord's word to the people. The people answer in verse 8. And then Moses takes the people's words back up to the Lord at the end of verse 8. And then we read here in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with them and may also believe you forever. So the Lord is anticipating what, he's, what we're going to read him doing. He's, he's, set, he's declaring his intention to do what we're going to read him doing down in verse 16 and following. And, and here he's saying, I'm going to come in the thick cloud. And notice the purpose here, that the people may hear when I speak with you. So the Lord is going to go on talking to Moses, but the people... They're going to see the fire come down on the mountaintop. And they're going to feel the mountain tremble. And, and the purpose of this, it seems, is so that the people will believe Moses. Look at what it says there. It says that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So here we see the way that, that Moses is representing the people to God. And, and the word of God is going to come through Moses. And then at the end of verse 9, Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Now, I think there's a, a new uh, unit here, starting in verse 10. And this is the central unit of the whole passage, verses 10 through 15. And I want to draw your attention to the way that the beginning statements of this unit match the end statements of this unit. So look at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Look down at verse 14. Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And then back up at verse 10, and let them wash their garments. Back down to verse 14, and they washed their garments. And then verse 11, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down. Verse 15, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman, which I've already spoken to to some degree. Uh, so this passage, verses 10 through 15, is bracketed by the call to consecrate, wa- consecrate yourself, wash your garments, and be ready for the third day because the Lord is coming down on the third day. And um, that, that statement there in verse 11, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. That's anticipating again the Lord saying in verse 9, I am coming to you. In a thick cloud. So the text is, is announcing that the people of Israel are going to see God come down on top of the mountain. And then look down at verse 13, at the end of the verse, where it says, When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So uh, what we're about to read is they're going to put this boundary around the mountain. And they're not to transgress that boundary. If they transgress that boundary, they die. But when the trumpet blasts, they're to come up to that boundary. So look at verse uh, 12. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, 
Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So um, this boundary is placed around the mountain, and it's, it's almost as though the mountain becomes the holy, the holy place and the holy of holies where Moses is going to ascend to. And nobody can go there on pain of death. This is going to be replicated at, at the, both the tabernacle and then later also the temple. And, and notice where we are in, in the book. We haven't received the tabernacle yet. We're going to get instructions for the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 32. Nor have we received yet any of the instructions for sacrifice, which are all going to come in the book of Leviticus. So... Moses is dealing with a people that are not being cleansed and purified by all those sacrifices and washings. So if they come into contact with the holy, they're going to die. And, and, and that's being prevented by this boundary around the mountain. So there's that, that central unit where the holiness of God is, is clearly articulated and the people are in danger because of the, the holiness of God. And as a, as a kind of application here, I want to say that I want to compare and contrast this to the new covenant situation, right? Because the Lord Jesus told the the Samaritan woman in John 4 that a time is coming and is now here when you will worship the Father no longer on this mountain, talking about that mountain in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem at Mount Zion, but in spirit and in truth, okay? So what we conclude from that is there's no place, there's no particular place in the new covenant where we go for worship, unlike under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, you go to the temple once it's built. Before that, the tabernacle. That's where you go to worship. And if you don't, and you try to sacrifice somewhere else, you're sinning against the Lord. Okay, so there's no place. Um, Also, I would note, you know, all those regulations about life fluids leaving the body and so forth, uh, we don't, the New Covenant does not uh, include such regulations. And um, in the New Covenant, there's no death penalty for uh, those who, you know, worship in a way that's not prescribed, as there is under the Old Covenants. So we have different regulations under the New Covenant, but the same God, we're dealing with the same God, and that, that God, that same God, has the same holy character. And our response to the holiness of God should be the fear of God. So this text should teach us to fear God. And and this text also points forward to that passage that J.L. read earlier in the service in Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews says, you've not come to a mountain that may not be touched. You've come, did you hear it? You've come to the congregation or the church of the firstborn. And earlier in the book of Hebrews Uh, The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 talks about how when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The firstborn is the Lord Jesus. You've come to the church, the congregation of the firstborn. And he's talking about the way that in Christ, all this stuff that is in the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. And, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, he speaks of how we enter into the holy places and go through the veil into the very presence of God. 
as if we're entering into the holy of holies because of Christ, which is remarkable that, that God would welcome us into the place where, at this point, only Moses goes. Once the tabernacle is built and once the temple is built, only the high priest goes and only once a year. But because of what Christ has done, we go into the very presence of God. The Lord comes down on the mountain starting in verse 16. And we read here, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud. He had said back up in verse 9, He's coming in a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And this is uh, elaborated upon in Deuteronomy. Moses said, Moses says in Deuteronomy, even I was afraid when this happened. And that's what the author of Hebrews picks up on when he says, Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So the Lord is coming down on the mountaintop. The people are standing at the foot of the mountain. And, and now we're going to read about the, the cosmic disturbances that took place when the almighty, everlasting, eternal, and omniscient, omnipresent one entered into this little reality that he created. So we read in verse 17... I'm sorry, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord, Yahweh, had descended on it in fire. So it's often, it's often the case that when the Lord shows up, uh, there, there's fire that manifests, you know. So there's this, this uh, flaming uh, fire pot uh, that, that passes between the pieces in, in Genesis 15 uh, when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And then in Exodus 3, there's that burning bush that is not consumed. And now the Lord descends upon the mountain in fire. And we read here, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. Maybe you've seen a massive building on fire. And the way that there is this, this black smoke that you cannot see through that is just billowing up into the air and blocking your vision and making it so that you can't see the flames even. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. Can you, can you imagine being there and, and feeling the earth trembling beneath your feet and seeing the flames and the billowing smoke and knowing that's all coming from God? And then verse 19, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him, in thunder. So this is what uh, the Lord had said back up in verse, verse 9. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So this is like a climactic moment, but then it becomes anticlimactic. Because what's going to happen is Moses is going to go up, but the people are going to be told, you can't enter. No entry. So Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And that statement of Moses going up there in verse 20 matches the statement back up in verse 3 of Moses going up to God. Moses went up, uh, but the, 
the people, as, as I've said, are going to be told, you may not come up, and, and Moses is going to be sent back down to make sure they don't in verses 21 through 25. And then what's going to happen is from the top of the mountain, God is going to speak the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Um, so look, look with me at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, What's, what's the problem? The problem is they don't have the sacrificial system yet. And even greater than that, the problem is the Lord Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. And as a result, the Lord's coming down on the mountain, as good as it is, is very dangerous for them. If they they cross that boundary, that limit that's been set around the mountain, they are going to die in their sin and unclean state. Now, compare that compare that do not approach, do not come near. You are in danger with these words. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, it's almost as though he's saying you can cross the limit And start ascending the mountain. And then he continues in verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And if we compare, you know, Mount Sinai to the tabernacle and temple, the holy places were outside the holy of holies. And behind the curtain was the holy of holies. And and it's like the author of Hebrews is saying, not only can you go up the slopes of the mountain, you can go to the mountaintop, the the holy of holies where Moses met with God. Not only can you enter into that place where only the priests could go, in the holy place of the tabernacle and then the temple, you can enter into the holy of holies through Christ. Through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And then he says in verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. He's he's not speaking of literal realities here. He's talking about the way that by faith in Christ, we are fully and completely forgiven of our sins and cleansed of all the ways that those sins And our our various contacts with death have defiled us. So what's the upshot of this? What's the application that I'm driving toward? Here's the application. Draw near and worship. Realize, I, I hope that what you feel is the enormous privilege it is to be part of the new covenant people of God. You are urged, even commanded to do what the people of Israel were forbidden from doing, to enter into the very presence of God, there to worship him. And, And I think that if you do this, if you do this 
with us corporately here, if you are regularly in attendance and, and, and worship with us because you believe in Jesus, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that we believe that, yes, God is holy, and we believe that, yes, sinners who, are, who don't have their sins atoned for are in danger of being punished and, and banished into death by him. But because of the sacrifice that's been provided through the Lord Jesus, because of his death and resurrection on the cross, we can enter into the presence of God with no fear that he's going to strike us dead, but rather there we can enjoy fullness of life. And there we can have our, our minds renewed and our perspective transformed so that we see obedience not as some dull requirement. I've got to do the dishes for my mom because she told me to. No. And not, not I've got to crucify my flesh even though sin is so fun. No. We see I get to walk in holiness. I get to serve others, and lay down my life for them because this is where fullness of life is. This is where fullness of joy is in walking with God, in knowing God, in enjoying God's presence and not, not being banished from it or warned away from it. So, I, so to continue my thought, if you, if you regularly gather with us in worship and if you worship the Lord in private at home, you read the scriptures, and, and you allow the scriptures and the perspective that's taught here to re renew your mind, you will be transformed. It will happen that you will bear fruit. You will find yourself thinking things like, you know, I'll be a lot more happy if I serve these people instead of demanding that they serve me. I'll have a lot more joy if I refuse to indulge my flesh and instead pursue the path of holiness. I'll enjoy my life if I walk with God, if I live for Him, because you're made for that. You're made for God. You'll be like a car driving on the road, a guitar making music. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. Father, we pray that it would be so. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us, convince us of your holiness, of the indescribable privilege of being your people, of the wonder of being welcomed in. And Lord, we pray that worshiping you would indeed transform us and make us Christ-like, make us those who are not only your treasured possession, but also a kingdom of priests, people who represent you to others. Lord, I pray that you would Make it so that when people see us, they see you. When people see the way that they live, they want to know you. They want to understand the scriptures and they want to, they want to hear about the gospel. Make it so, we pray. And Lord, we would be a holy nation. 
pure like our Lord Jesus, innocent and undefiled. And we pray that there, in that place, we would find fullness of joy. For your glory in Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.